0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Live from Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, joining me as they do every Tuesday. She is the former lawyer for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign in Ohio. She is the one we know as Sharmila Chari. Good afternoon, Sharmila.
0: Good afternoon, Justin.
1: And joining us from now, I believe, South Florida, he is the retired one star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man that we know as. Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, how are you?
2: Good afternoon from the Palm Coast. Doing well, thank you.
1: And joining us from... Uh, actually, the the 703 number comes up as he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents, longtime Senate staffer, long-time... Uh, long-time... Washington Insider, he's the man we know as Alan Moore. Alan, hello.
3: Hello, Justin. Uh,
1: Also joining us on the line, she is the former on-air talent for NBC News and ABC News. She is former Washington producer for your favorite today's show. She's the one that we know as Laura Chavez. Hello, Laura.
4: Hi, everyone.
1: And finally, joining us on the line is – and we still cannot believe he's on the line with us – he is the man that we know as Dan Lipner, Esquire. Daniel, hello, sir.
5: Hello, and I have a question to start the show. How much would our stock drop if Alan was smoking a blunt on TV?
1: Wow. Um, that's a good question. We'll we'll deal with that later in the show. Hey uh, – it is kind of a solemn day. Uh, obviously, it's September 11th. Uh, 17 years ago today, three uh, three airplanes made their way into the North and South Towers of the World Trade Center. One went into the Pentagon, and a fourth plane went into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, in total, almost 3,000. People lost their lives in what was largely seen as the most senseless act of violence ever committed against the American people Uh, we take 9-11 very seriously Uh, it is a day that we see names read bells rung and tears shed but I want to start off with this right now because of a lot of the decisiveness or a lot of the division that's happening in this country, a lot of the venomous back and forth that we see politically. And we look back after 9-11 and everybody came together as Americans. Uh, First of all, the big question I have is, and Admiral Ken, I'll start with you. 17 years on. Are we starting to become numb? Are we starting to be maybe even just not so emotional about 9-11? Or is it still sting as much today as it did 17 years ago?
2: I, I think it really depends on who you are, where you are, and um, what your um, proximity, uh, both emotionally and physically, to the event uh, are um a great many uh people these days are, are you know are coming up on being young adults who were babies if not yet born when this happened and for them uh they have the same um um I think attitude toward 9/11 as most of us in our generation have toward Pearl Harbor uh both climatic events that changed the course of the national uh national direction for for uh for for years uh, years in the uh, in the aftermath. Um, for the people uh, who live in New York, uh, in and around New York, the folks that live in and around Washington, D.C., especially those within uh, earshot of the Pentagon, it, it's not uh, something that was going to easily fade into the past. If you're in the U.S. military or if you happen to join the U.S. military in the aftermath of the 9-11 event, again, it is not something that um, Will would, would pass into the night for you very easily. Um, I, you know, I, I think you hit on something uh, in your in your uh, your announcement of the segment that I think uh, bears men- bears great mention. While September 11th was a um, a climatic and tragic event, um, I I take heart in the fact that for about 60 days after that event. I have never seen this country more united uh, than 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 uh, more united since then, um, and I just think it's a shame that uh, we are now, you know, for all practical purposes, ripping each other apart almost on a daily basis, um, and we've gotten away from that patriotism, that that feeling of oneness, that that you know that was just. Th- this country was just drowning in it. You couldn't, you couldn't uh, hit a, uh, swing a dead chicken without hitting a U.S. flag, either on somebody's car, on their house, their boat, uh, and, and everybody was was banding together, thinking we will not be uh, beaten. This whole, this we, this might push us back, but it didn't knock us down. That spirit seems to have gone, and that that is is the sad thing.
1: Sharma, you're there in Lower Manhattan. Uh, I was watching earlier the ceremony where they read the names of those who lost their lives in uh, the tragic events there at the World Trade Center and the falling of, of the of the Twin Towers, is the sense of loss, is the sense of tragedy, is the sense of, of anger still present in all of New York City, let alone lower Manhattan, 17 years on, in your opinion?
0: Yes, well, I'm actually in midtown Manhattan now, but I mean, the sense of loss here is still incredibly profound. If you go down to Ground Zero, to the uh, 9-11 Memorial, it's, you know, an incredibly solemn experience, and especially today when you still have the mayor, the governor, the families of so many of the victims gathering, and especially at 846 a.m., that's you know, the moment that the first plane hit the north tower of the Trade Center, it's always a moment of silence in the city. And then, you know, sort of the remembrance continues all day. When it gets dark, they, they light up the twin beacons of light in the place where the two towers once stood, and it's an incredibly poignant reminder. So on one hand, you know, the city is kind of doing the best it's done since September 11th in terms of economics and prosperity, but at the same time, the city never wants to forget, and it always wants to honor um, all the all the people that we lost in that horrible day. Hey,
1: Laura Chavez, is that feeling transverse into the Midwest where you are in Chicago?
4: Uh, in certain parts, it does. So, uh, being in Chicago, one of the things that's really great is that you do have a lot of sister cities. Any big city in the country, well, yes, there are their rivalries, they are very well aware of the fact that like this happened in Washington, this happened in New York, this could have happened here, you know, Uh, places like LA or Boston, they all have that same kind of sympathetic or empathetic ear to these uh, now tragic sites. Um, I don't, I'm not even going to pretend that it is as strong of a patriotism in Chicago uh, as it is in New York, but we every day or every year, you know, the mayor stops down. We, we, uh, raise the flag to half staff for a minute. We pull them back up, and I understand that it's probably not even remotely enough time. But there is a certain amount of remembrance. I think that it is a little easier to move on in the Midwest because, as Admiral Ken said, there is that distance there. Uh, we aren't reminded about it every day necessarily. We also, as he put, as he very eloquently noticed, um, we don't have kids that lost their parents that day here, and if we do. It's it's not something that comes up as often. So I think the Midwest, while very sympathetic, while we do remember, it's a lot easier for us to heal because we don't have those constant reminders um, every day of, you know, on the commute to work or anything like that. You know, it's hard to go around D.C. without passing the Pentagon. And that's one of those things where, like, when you do, you, realize, you have that moment of, oh, I'm passing the Pentagon. Oh, that's right. 17 years ago today something massive happened that changed the trajectory of the United States forever. You know, Alan Moore,
1: Laura and, and, and Sharmila bring up really great points. Uh, I woke up this morning. I looked out my balcony. Uh, For those who don't know, I I live in Arlington and I have a view of the Pentagon. In fact, I have a view of, I have a view of the uh, side of the Pentagon that was actually hit from my balcony. And it it struck me that I lived that close to it. I, I wake up every morning and that memory of nine eleven is there. I remember the feeling of driving across the Whitestone Bridge in Queens and looking off in the distance and where it used to be these regal towers and these regal symbols of of New York. There was an empty space. Uh, but I guess the the crux of my question, Alan Moore, is is there a fear that we're quickly losing the importance of nine eleven and what it, its meaning is kind of like the way that maybe my generation looks at December 7th, kind of like a, oh yeah, that happened.
3: Well, I, I think, Ken did a really good job of of uh, sort of describing the evolution of thinking and and, and the others as well um, there's an age factor that's important here as well as a geographic factor uh there There are kids who are a year or two old on nine eleven who have served in Afghanistan or Iraq were that far removed from the events of that day now they may have heard that that the reason we 've had this uh, forever feeling war in Afghanistan is because of the attack that that was hatched um, in important ways in Afghanistan, just as um, people who who went into the military uh, who were born after well after Pearl Harbor know that what happened that day. It's only 17 years, and for many of us, whether we were here, I was in my office in the U.S. Senate when 9/11 uh, hit the the Twin Tower, when when the planes hit the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, and and we fled. Um, it, it was a visceral. It lives it lives a deeply in me, but I think that that people around the country. Um, Uh, Have vivid memories as well that, oh my God, America is under attack in ways that we found unimaginable. Nothing will ever be the same. And lives uh, throughout the country were impacted in significant ways immediately thereafter, especially when it came to air travel, but on an ongoing basis. And we live with it today. All the security that we deal with, not only at airports, but in buildings. Um, and, and elsewhere, in many ways, grew out of the attack uh, on, uh, on 9-11. And so it's not as though we escape it. It's not as though I sit every day and think the way I did that that day and, and and watched those images and dismissed everybody on the staff and invited them all to please go home before 15 minutes later everyone was ordered to leave the Senate office buildings. Um uh, and I just remember thinking nothing will ever be the same in America. And in some ways, it's true. We're still at war. There are still all of these intrusive security measures that are part of our life. Some of which, arguably, went too far. Some of the some of the the surveillance uh, on phone calls that has become controversial that passed. With, with near unanimous support back in the day, when we realized that there were people among us who wanted to do to do harm, so I'm not worried that people have forgotten or are going to forget soon, even if they don't reflect upon it when they're going through security at an airport and realize, oh, oh yeah, that has important roots uh, in 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 9/11. Um, now we've adjusted we've adjusted to all of those changes, but I think as, as Ken so accurately uh, uh, pointed out um, some of, and you too, Justin, uh, some of what bound us together in the immediate aftermath for the first weeks, months, even years um, has moved to a new normal, a different place um, for a whole host of different reasons. It wasn't that, we don't worry about security, or we don't worry that there are terrorist elements among us, that there are people uh, here and abroad who, who would do us harm. It's just not as immediate, and it's not as urgent, and other issues uh, sort of rise to the fore, although one can certainly argue that, 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 that our president's views towards immigrants, um, and particularly immigrants from Muslim countries— doesn't in some ways tie back to the fear that grew out of the attacks on 9-11 because of the origin of those people.
1: Dan Lipner, is, is America truly different as far as the way that we look at each other, the way we look outward from the United States from
5: in in uh, 2001? Um, no. So I, I think Ken, again, had it right. Uh, that that united feeling that we felt was for about a 60-day window. And even then, its for inner Middle Eastern descent uh, quickly began to feel as though uh, they might not be part of that community. And there's a lot of evidence on that, though we need to be a little cautious when we say we, we all united together as Americans. We still excluded some people who are Americans. Uh, that, but still looking at the history, we had just gotten done with the first of the close elections where the, where the presidential, where the person who took the oath of office not a year before won with a minority of the votes. We were a a divided country. Maybe the split hadn't sharpened quite as much as it has with uh, the current president in the White House, but it was there. And we were doing things and and puttering puttering along, but uh, there were elements of bipartisanship. The new president had come into office and reached out across the aisle for the No Child Left Behind Act, which – he brought Ted Kennedy in on. So there were things of bipartisanship. But the country was still fraying and we were divided. To Alan's point, the security issues, that's the bigger deal. So people of our age, we know, we've seen the history that where you can walk into the Capitol building and bump into a member of Congress without having to go through major security or without having to go through the new Capitol Visitor Center, which didn't even exist before uh, September 11th. But you can now not go into the Capitol without a tour. You can go into the Capitol office buildings, uh, but you can't go into the Capitol building itself, which I think is kind of a democratic symbol that the People's House You still can't wander into it on on your own. That's a thing. And the generation that's coming up, some of whom are now fighting in Afghanistan, this is their normal. And to some extent, there's not a whole lot of questioning of some of these changes that have taken place that are just matter of fact. Now, I'm not suggesting we should do away with security, let me be clear. But it should give us a little bit of pause, the security that we have, and – whether or not that's really who we are. That question is somewhat unasked now. Uh, it's just what it is. And I think it's something to pay attention to.
1: Admiral Ken, are we truly in a better place, whether it be security, whether it be, uh, you know, even economically, even socially, are we in a better place now than we were 17 years ago on this day in 2001
2: um yes and no and i realize that's a um a waffling kind of answer so i'll qualify it so you know we haven't had a major terrorist attack from the outside uh from outside us borders since 9/11 so the 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 um the job of getting the intelligence services working with local law enforcement, working with federal law enforcement, working with the federal judiciary, uh, we seem to have, have cracked the code on that. Um and you know, we we were able, you know, so far to to to, to stop these these uh these, these external threats. And and I and I'll and I'll 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 qualify that or or caveat that by saying these folks have to be good every day. Um, the, the bad guys have, have just got to get lucky at some point. Um, are we in ways that we are not better off? We still haven't found a way to, to counter that, um, that lone wolf uh, threat, of uh, the, the, the person that's been radicalized by something that they've seen on the Internet or heard in a, um, in a speech or, or read someplace. Uh, we haven't figured that one out yet. Um, I think that as a person who travels uh, a lot, who travels uh, from you know the, the, the beautiful Palm Coast of Florida to Washington D.C. every other week or so, I am constantly um, um, reminded of the level of security that exists, especially when you're flying in the Washington D.C. You, you, you know, you used to be able to you know to get out of your seat, unbuckle your seatbelt. Uh, to look out the window at our beautiful capital as you're flying in, you do that now. There's probably be some air marshals on you, if not on the airplane, definitely when you land. Uh, so we've given up. Uh, we've we violated Ben Franklin's law. We've we've given up uh, some freedom for uh, for what seems to be better security. Um, I think that um, from a cultural perspective, Dan hit the. You know, Dan made a good point in that. Um, you know, people have looked um, askance or sideways at, at people who appear to be from a, uh, a Middle Eastern um, or Muslim uh, origins. and that's not right. It's not fair. Um, we all know, you know the dangers of, of prejudice and what that can do and how it can blind you to the fact that you know, the, the bad guys now, a lot of them have blonde hair and blue eyes. they're Russians. <laughs> they They're Scandinavians. They come from all over the place. Everybody has flocked to to ISIS. So uh, I think there's some reason to look at some of the the uh, the policies the president has wanted to put in place since his election is really you know uh, not quite right, not quite American because that's you know restricting who you are based on how you worship or how you look. Uh, It's just not something that this country is supposed to be about. I certainly didn't put on the uniform to defend that for the last 32 years. So I think in some ways we're better, in some ways we're not. And um, I, you know, from an economic perspective, I think everybody realized now we can't shut ourselves off from the rest of the world economically. It's a global, it's a global economy. We've got to play.
1: Hey, I, I want to bring in our producer, uh, Audrey Howerton, who is, I believe, at an undisclosed location somewhere in upstate New York now. Uh, Audrey, thanks for coming on. Oh, of
6: course, I'm happy to be back.
1: And uh, Audrey, you were what, three when 9/11 I'm happened? Three, four, four
0: years old.
1: You were four years old. You really don't truly recall in America. Pre nine eleven, how when you see all the ceremonies and you hear the names read and you see all the videos on YouTube and Facebook and everything, what's that like from your perspective? This is a you, you don't remember in America before it.
6: No, so I cannot cite any differences pre or post nine eleven, but I do have memories from that day. I'm probably one of the very few people my age who do. But what's interesting, I think, for me to see is I grew up hearing about it. I lived through the day to some degree. Again, I was four, so my memories are limited. But I knew about 9-11 and what had happened from a young age And I had friends who didn't really find out about it until later their parents chose to wait until they were seven or eight to tell them so they wouldn't be afraid on family vacations. But what I see now with my cousins who are in middle school and freshmen in high school is they're learning about it from a history book. They don't have firsthand experience. So for them, it's just, another event that happened to America. It's another foreign policy thing they get tested on. So we are, I think, Justin, to your earlier point, becoming used to it and treating it like December 7th, where it's something you learn about and remember and note on the calendar, but the personal importance is becoming less and less as generations get older. Sharm, what did
1: Did we lose some of our innocence, or did we just lose some of our naivete on September 11, 2001?
0: I think we certainly lost our innocence. I was actually a college student in Washington, D.C. on September 11, and I'll never forget how jarring that day was. Um, You know, I went to a school where a large amount of the student body was from the tri-state area, and I mean, you know, New New Jersey, Connecticut, so it wasn't just this horrible thing was happening to our country, but it was also incredibly personally affecting because every, like, you know, almost everyone I talked to that day knew someone who you know, worked in lower Manhattan, who potentially worked at the trade center. A lot of people's parents worked at the trade center or right around there. You know, the sense of panic and worry and sort of that feeling of, my God, our lives are so delicate and we can, can be snuffed out in the matter of an instant. Um, And especially at that sort of formative age when you're in college and you think your whole life is ahead of you, was an incredibly affecting experience. And so I think as a country, we certainly lost our innocence in a really significant way, you know, sort of seeing that, you know, this hatred for our country and for our way of life existed when we weren't in an act of war, when, you know, it was literally this attack came out of the clear blue sky, so I do think that, to your point, our innocence, our collective naivete about, you know, the, the exalted place of America was certainly shattered, but it resolved, it resulted in us coming together in an incredibly strong, significant way and being more determined that, you know, our democracy was worth protecting.
1: Lord Chavez, you know, we talk about the, the, the numbness that we feel, you know, we heard, Audrey talk about her generation And how they just learn about September 11th and they read it in History books now Or the Is there a danger To that numbness and what Can we do to prevent it or should we prevent it
4: um, I don't know If I'd say it's a danger um, Because as Terrible as it sounds time marches on Like this is something that it's, I think we should be go- glad that it is part of the history books it is part of the curriculum it is something that is being carried on and there is a certain for lack of a better word and this is a terrible choice of words and i understand that but there's a certain blessing in being audrey's age or around there because they are able to read about this in history but there's also living history all around them They're able to go and talk to their parents about this. They're able to talk to their brothers and sisters. They're talking to their grandparents. This is very different than something that would be like learning about, um, for, again, a dramatic example, learning about
6: the Holocaust.
4: There are very few World War II um, veterans alive still, and this is one of those experiences that hopefully they will use and take advantage of the people around them, the places around them, the ceremonies that they can watch on television, be it the nightly news, CNN, Twitter, Facebook, whatever your choice of video uh, viewing is. I think that it is something that whether we, time will march on as much as we want it to stop it and hold it close. Um, I think there is hopefully going to be a, an entire generation who appreciates, the moment that it was that appreciates what it did to the country, but how it brought people together, but also takes heed that if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. So I don't really know if there's a danger to it. I think there's an inevitability to it.
1: Alan Moore, do you agree?
3: Yeah, I I I, I do, I, and I think what Laura's made a really important point, uh, at least for the next, oh, who knows, uh, generation, and that is that that um, kids who grew up <laughs> like Audrey not really knowing about it or were born after it are living with family members who remember it viscerally and have a chance to talk about it. And one one thing I think that occurs with these annual remembrances is it's a logical time for all of us as we're doing right now to reflect on what we were doing that day and how much we felt at risk and, and what was happening to our loved ones. And, um, we, uh, and we talk about it with them and, or we, we invite, uh, (laughs) invite children or grandchildren to ask their parents about it. Um, over time, it dwindles. I mean, I—I uh, was—I think I'm, I'm by far the oldest person on this phone call, but—but but, uh, I was not alive for Pearl Harbor. But I certainly remember hearing about it um, from from an early day because my parents lived through it, and they just could describe in great detail how they felt about something that was, was, was horrible for America that was, that happened in Hawaii. So, so, and there were, there were images, but they were delayed images. And the message from, from uh, President Roosevelt uh, was, um, uh, was on the radio. Um, And this uh, 9-11 many of us saw live, or we would swear we did, whether we did or not, because we saw the images so many times and it was and it was burned in or as i say i was in the capital and we feared that there was a plane headed for the capital and i had a daughter who was working in manhattan um and so there were so many personal links to to it along with those vivid ima- uh, those vivid images so we're not going to forget about nine 11 anytime soon because the memories are so deep and so vivid for many of us over time. Yes, it will, it will, it will gradually, I mean, it will continue to fade. It is fading. It will continue to fade and we will have internalized all the changes in our lives. Um, we talk about airport security because that's such an obvious one, but, but, but many others as well. Um, uh things that we wish we didn't have to devote so many resources to um new prejudices as, as as Ken and Dan have talked about uh that that sort of grew out of this feeding on other prejudices that that in f- for many preexisted um in, uh, in the in the minds of uh, of Americans um so uh and, and, and yeah and now obviously a president who 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 sees benefit politically in in trying to uh to feed on some of those yeah. uh, uh, you know those fears um it it is it's changed us in many ways. Just one comment because you had an original question: are we safe now or are we safer and I would say, we are safer today than we were then, but we are not safe. Right. Fair enough.
1: I'm going to let that be the last word. Um, Obviously, even 17 years later, our thoughts and prayers are with those who made the ultimate sacrifice and those who lost their lives in that senseless act of violence against our country. Uh, Whether uh, in Shanksville, New York or Washington, uh, it's it's still it still hits hard and we should never forget. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go back to regular order. And by regular order, we mean uh, there's chaos in Washington. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back in three minutes. Show you've never heard of this is Background Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me they do every Tuesday Sharmila Chari, Laura Chavez, Admiral Ken Caradine, Alan Moore, and Dan Lipner Esquire. Hey, um, let's talk a little bit about the chaos going on. So, in case you didn't see it last week, and I don't imagine how you could have missed it, uh, two interesting pieces of journalism came out last week. First, the snippets of the book that was just released, in fact, today is a new book out by famed investigative reporter from the Washington Post of Watergate fame, Bob Woodward. Bob Woodward put out a book today called Fear, and it describes basically a dysfunctional administration inside the White House, a an atmosphere of, of chaos, an atmosphere of... Uh, paranoia almost a, uh, and it describes a a group of people inside the white house that are basically putting up guardrails to keep the country from being tipped over by what seems to be a somewhat irrational at best uh crazy at worst oval office then to make it matters even more chaotic the New York Times op-ed staff decided to publish an anonymous article from what they call a senior White House official that basically uh, confirms a lot of what was in or what is in Bob Woodward's book. But the key phrase that everybody remembers out of that op-ed is that this senior administration official is part of the resistance it talks about situations where people are pulling memos off the desk of donald trump so he doesn't sign the country into an economic crisis and other just uh just mind-blowing revelations from this uh i'm gonna go around the table first because i want to get this out in the open okay uh i'm going to start with dan lipner did you write the op-ed piece in the New York Times?
5: <laughs> I, 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 I promised the author that I wouldn't reveal myself, so I can't say. Okay,
1: well, if, you would be the author if you were revealing yourself. So, okay. Uh, Sharon Lachari, did you write the New York Times op-ed piece?
0: Yes, and I've been secretly working as a senior Trump administration official this entire time.
1: They see we know that's not true because uh, you were in New York you were in New York most of last week we know that for a fact anyway uh, Laura Chavez did you write the op-ed piece for the New York Times
4: I did not but I'll go ahead and let Sharmila take the fall for it considering she just said yes
1: <laughs> Admiral Ken
2: I can neither confirm nor deny that I wrote the article for the New York Times. And
1: now we're going to go to the one who, if you, if you listen to him, uses the word lodestar a lot. Uh, Alan Moore, did you write the op-ed piece of the New York Times?
3: I am Spartacus.
0: <laughs> oh, By the way,
1: we'll get to that in the next segment, Alan. You're, you're jumping ahead.
3: Thank you, Corey.
1: Uh, thank you, to Senator Booker,
3: on that one. I can he- t- Anybody can use that. He can use it. <laughs> if he, he can use it, anybody can use it.
1: That's true. All right, I'll give you that one.
3: All right, good enough. Let's let's look at this real quickly.
1: Uh, Alan Moore, I'm going to start with you real quick. There's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that are saying on the op-ed piece that the person who wrote it was a coward, that if the person was truly trying to make a point and truly trying to this country from going down a cesspool tube that they should have revealed themselves, stood up and submitted this article with their name on it. And then when it got published, handed their resignation, walk out, drop the mic, deuces Trump. Is there any factuality to that? Is there any, is there any sense to that?
3: Well, you know, I, I, having had a chance long ago now to actually work in the West wing in the Ford White House, um, I'm sitting here trying to imagine um, what it would take to get somebody to uh, to write something like that. Uh, let, let the record show that it is not un- it's not unprecedented for staff people of politicians, or for that matter, uh, uh, corporate uh, corporate leaders and others. To be protective of their bosses, and sometimes to protect them from themselves and from their baser instincts. Um, There are numerous examples. Is that how you read
1: that, Alan? Is that how you read that article?
3: No. What all I'm saying is, when when people say, "Oh my God, this has never happened before," my 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 first notion is there are precedents to staff protecting leaders, be they presidents. Cabinet members and and so on. Now we're talking about a, a matter of degree, I think. And, and 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 the the thing about the op-ed is it came on the heels of the uh, of the uh, the Woodward book, which is now out, but copies were around. And that has uh, story after story after story of frustrated people trying to figure out what to do, how to manage, how to function how to protect the president from himself. And then we have this one unnamed senior administration official. Uh, initially you called it a senior white house official. I think it's senior administration official. Um, it had it had it, this notion of this, this, this group that <laughs> that was trying to make stuff happen. It's it, 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 it re, one really seemed to me could have read the woodward. And then written the op-ed off of what's in the woodward um, and I'm not saying that's what happened, um, but but my, my my only point was to say, what do you do if you're in that position? It seems to me that you do one of two things. You keep your head down and keep doing it because you don't want to call attention to it or blow the whistle on it, or you do as you were suggesting. You just say, I'm done, and I'm going to talk about it because I think there's a need for the country to know. This middle ground um, is one I'm trying to figure out. I'm not as critical as some people are. I don't think it was cowardly per se. It was an odd thing for the New York Times editorial page to decide to, uh, to to give so much visibility to, especially on the heels, especially on the heels of the Woodward book, which is that op-ed many multiples over. Um, So, it was an odd choice. It, cr- it creates this phony effort to say, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? We've got to find out. We've got to find out, as opposed to, let's talk about the it. Let's talk about the it that has been described now in detail by Woodward um, in this op-ed, and let's acknowledge many, many other news reports over the last year and a half, um, virtually all of which are anonymous, because People talk to to press and curry favor with press, and most of the journalists who were hearing first of all about the Woodward book said, "Yep, that's the kind of stuff we've been hearing for a year and a half." And then here's the op-ed, like, "Yeah, I don't know who that is," but at the moment that came out, I get calls from some of my friends in the White House saying, "I could have written that. I could have written that. It's the that." It's the behavior that we need to be concerned about, not the the, the anonymous writer of an op ed and whether he or or was or was not a a coward or a patriot but
1: but here's the question I've got though is lord chavez the the New York Times op ed editorial staff took a real big risk they they put this out there anonymously, but isn't there a fear that if this person is not a known named commodity inside every house in America, that if it's a, you know, a, a assistant to the special assistant type, that this could blow up in their face and the New York Times could lose credibility along with the journalism community?
4: I think that's a risk you take with most op-ed pieces. I think that's one of the, the stronger arguments for not publishing an op-ed. But keep in mind, that the New York Times has, not, has a uh, very strong relationship with the Trump administration. It's not like there isn't going to be any love lost there. Um, and one thing I will say is if this is a – well, yes, they're saying senior staffer um, – if this is someone who's a little lower in rank, uh, he won't be for long. He or she won't be for long. It's going to be, one, an immediate dismissal and then an immediate book deal. This person will go through firestorm, but odds are they're going to stay inside the beltway. So while, well, yes, they are risking their reputation, they'll find something on the other side. So the person who penned it didn't have that, has a lot to risk, and it's more reputation-based but not to, but look at the reputation of the person in the Oval Office right now. I think this is a bizarro world we're living in, where there is a cabal of people in the West Wing who are trying to protect the president from himself. And whether this book, this op-ed, Omarosa's book, um, or uh, Fire and Fury, or any of the other books that are out there, um, they I mean, I don't know if they're all going to grab a cocktail after, or, you know, 2020 or 24 to just talk about this and talk it through, but I think the risk that the New York Times took is minimal. Their reputation—it's one of those things that, like, if you are a Trump supporter, then you look at this and you say it is blasphemous it is smearing the president it is terrible things and if you are a never trumper then you are looking at this saying look see more evidence look see more evidence this is not going to be what uh, takes down the new york times in journalistic credibility this is going to be something that we talk about for about a week maybe two weeks and then we say all right moving on the real danger i think is if there is this you know um insurgent group in the white house now all of a sudden there are definitely people hunting them down the and you've also notified the one person you shouldn't notify that you're taking things off his desk if you are trying to protect the u.s from you know trump himself you've now told him that oh we're taking things off your desk if he's really in the mood to be hyper vigilant he's going to start noticing that and there therefore you've actually shot yourself in the foot so it's a lot of, it's a multi-pronged fork, if you will, on this one that's just going to stab everything. Nothing great came from this op-ed other than a lot of really like salacious headlines that people kind of already knew. I don't think the New York I think the New York Times got a lot of clicks on it, which is great for, you know, readership and stuff, but I don't think there it really moved the needle in any way or shape or form, and I don't think it's going to.
1: And Dan Lutner, Laura brings up a really good point here. Basically, all the Bob Woodward book does and this op ed does is just confirm what we kind of read in the hack book, Fire and Fury, uh, and what was brought out in Amorosa's book, and what we've been, and what any of us who work in this space have known for, if not weeks, months.
4: What
1: exactly? What exactly is the upside? To me, it, it almost seems like the op-ed helps Trump and Trump's argument.
5: So something that Laura said caught my attention when she said uh, the the writer could uh, it could affect their reputation negatively. Let's pose for a split second that. Maybe this editorial wasn't about Trump. It was about the people who aren't Trump saying that, hi, we're Republicans, we're normal Republicans, we're here too. And by the way, I want it on record that I've been doing this and I have something to gain later on. Maybe that last part isn't said quite as explicitly, but part of the reason for this when somebody says, hi, it was me, their reputation could be seen a little differently. And if Trump does absolutely crash and burn, they can say they were the first one to say, listen, folks, the iceberg is there, the Titanic's in trouble. So there is an upside there. And arguably, since, as Alan pointed out, we knew a lot of this. We, if anyone had been following the press had heard rumors of all sorts of crazy stuff as well as the statements and the actions of the president himself that none of us are spending any time thinking, wait, could that really be happening in this white house? That's not a conversation that anyone is having in a meaningful way. It's who the leaker is. So they didn't even brush it aside. So yeah, there is something to gain. And I think it's the question question who it is and looking at, well, I'm not so sure it's an, a White House official, even though pretty much explicitly stated there is a team of people working around the president to keep him from doing things that aren't good. So the author might only be the speaker or, or the soloist for the course that is actually acting, and he says the author wasn't acting under their blessing.
1: Um, Alan Moore? Is, is, is this, in fact, describing, as some have said, uh, a soft coup inside the White House when they talk about 25th Amendment, when they talk about pulling stuff off the desk, isolating the president? Uh, are, are we witnessing basically a slow, painful death of an administration by journalistic coup?
3: Well, it wouldn't be journalistic, coup, uh, in my judgment. Um, uh, the, the, we, we may, in fact, be watching um, the slow, sometimes not as slow, depending upon if it does lead to a death and when that is, um, uh, decline, diminishment um uh, of this uh, this president and this administration uh we've got an election coming up which is going to tell us a lot about how the, the public feels there were some polls out in the last 24 hours that show that that the president's approval rating is is now lower than it has been um since his election um that his honesty ratings which have been low uh, are still lower um it's interesting that there's obviously people who find him dishonest, but who still approve of him, um, which is a sad statement, but okay. Uh, it's just one of those interesting little things when you, uh, that you discover uh, to your <laughs> dismay when you, when you stare at, at, uh, at, at some of these poll results. So, you know, if the president uh, is, is, uh, uh, discarded, if you will, in big ways in a wave election for Democrats uh, in in the, in the fall. If we get a Mueller report that is extraordinarily critical um, of the president, if we get a House of Representative that starts uh, beginning some investigations of various, various issues that they would like to take a look at. Uh, I'm not talking impeachment here, um, although there's certainly a, a, a group that would like to go down that road. Um, we could see uh, a a situation that is extraordinarily uh, difficult uh, for this president uh, to, to survive um, or to function, uh, you know, whether he survives. I mean, again, I'm, you know, this, uh, this outlier who doesn't think he's going to run in 2020. um, And one of the possible reasons that would be, because there could be any number that would, that would come up is if, If if we have a a a, a democratic House, possibly a democratic Senate, uh, a bad Mueller uh, report, um, uh, some some bad economic news, um, a president under. Uh, uh under assault from all around in uh, and, and some more courageous republicans stepping forward to be critical suddenly he could con- and, and business for the in the trump enter- and, uh, empire uh, to, uh, off and declining he he could it doesn't strike me as that weird or strange that he might say enough enough um now he, he it's not his, it's not his, how he's wired it's not in his dna um to 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 walk away um, maybe it'll cause a, you know, some kind of a health, um, uh, uh emergency for him. I have no idea. I have no idea, but the the, 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 larger point I'm trying to make is this is, these are just building blocks. Um, and the, and, and as I say, I think that the Woodward book is more problematic because there's a lot more detail. There are direct quotes, um, uh, from, from particular meetings. Um, uh, and the, the op-ed is is interesting. It kind of is confirmative of some of what people have thought have been reported and, and, and what's in the Woodward book. Who the person is and what the person's level is, to me, is not all that important. Uh, I know some people think it's got to be somebody really high, a household word, and I'm thinking how many people had heard of Gary Cohn or Rob Porter before they got into the news? Rob Porter, who was staff secretary most people have no idea what that means and would simply think oh you know some secretary some administrative person or gary Cohn, oh an economic advisor some rich guy from wall street um those guys are quoted all over the the woodward book not because those guys gave woodward their own quotes although they might have um but but they're they show up so often that they are immediate targets of people who likely talked to Woodward, whether or not quotes that are used, but, but a, a, a Rob Porter is, is, is a better example than Cohn only because Cohn had a independent, well-established reputation. The head of Goldman Sachs is, is, is no small uh, matter. Rob Porter didn't, didn't have that, but Rob Porter was a key player who handled every piece of paper that went into the president. And he was, therefore, dealing at the highest levels every day, all the time, with everybody who mattered inside the White House. Well, there are other people who who are who are not that different from that, who you never heard of, but who are plugged in. Every one of these people who, who has said, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, including all these cabinet secretaries, and, and that sort of ghastly response, they all have deputies, they all have chiefs of staff, they all have a few people that they – that they presumably confide in. So there's a network, there's a broad group of people who can be, uh, who, who, who might be known to to be on the inside of what's going on in the White House. But it, it, for me, the who doesn't really matter. I don't expect that we're going to find out anytime soon. Um, people can have fun speculating. So again, it's not the who wrote that it's, or who, who the hundred uh, interviews that, that Bob Woodward had—it's the right. disaster of disastrous picture of chaos and right. and concern that, that 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 is all over the book and the op-ed that needs to be our big, biggest right. concern.
1: Uh, this obviously gave Donald Trump a lot of fodder to go after uh, the press. Dan Lipner. He, he, First of all, he called out in a tweet and at a rally this week that the New York Times should deliver the author to the federal government as a matter of national security. He called out treason. Uh, obviously, the president doesn't have a leg to stand on here, does he?
5: Absolutely not, and if anything, it's downright dangerous not only what the president said to the New York Times, but more explicitly and directly how he – the statement he made about the Department of Justice. There's no evidence that he actually did a private instruction to the Department of Justice to prosecute this person, but he did very publicly state the Department of Justice should prosecute the author. That is a dangerous thing coming from the president of the United States.
1: Laura Lord, Lord Chavez, should this scare the journalistic community that he's talking about this? and libel laws and, you know, treasonous charges against the New York Times and the individual who wrote this saying that they violated national security. Should this put the press on notice?
4: Um, I'm sure a lot of people would say yes, but this is actually just going to encourage the press even more uh, to have a – journalists have a certain type of mentality where when they see fire, they run towards it. And this is one of those things where Donald Trump is essentially threatening them. So they're going to say, they're going to try to call his bluff. They're going to say, okay, great. You want to force us to reveal our sources. That's not how this works. We are essentially the fourth branch of government. We are going to continue to do our jobs and we're going to do them harder and faster. And you are not going to be able to keep up with us because we are just that determined. So I think I don't think it's going to scare anyone. I think it's probably going to encourage more pieces like this to come out. Sharmla,
1: help me out here.
4: We're seeing a lot
1: of aggressive talk coming from the Republicans uh, in the White House. We're not seeing a lot of aggressive talk coming from the Republicans on the Hill. And we're, oddly enough, not seeing a lot of uh, aggressive talk coming out of Democrats. What's what's the play here, Sharmila? Where do the Democrats capitalize on it, or can they?
0: On the op-ed? On, I think, on well, any of I...
1: this. On the op-ed, on the uh, Omarosa tapes that were just released today, on the Bob Woodward book.
0: I mean, I think that... You know, I think with the reactions you saw on Capitol Hill, especially from some senior senators like Bob Corker, Ben Sasse, Jeff Flake, who when the book and the article came out, it was kind of like a giant meh. Everyone just sort of reacted in a very – it was almost nonplussed or blasé. It was very, oh, you know, this is nothing we haven't heard before. This all tracks. Uh, You know, next question. So I think that the Democrats, if they're smart – Shouldn't actually harp on this at all. The fact that, again, I, I feel like I say this all the time, but the fact that the President is incompetent and unfit for his job is pretty much baked into the cake now. I don't think there's a single person in America unless they're living under a rock that doesn't know where the two sides stand on this issue. I think that for the Democrats, for the Democrats, they've seen a successful strategy, Uh, with a lot of these primaries that have been happening where the candidate doesn't focus on Trump, where the candidate focuses on policies and lets their Republican opponent kind of embrace the president very strongly. And you've seen a lot of instances where when when those two strategies are employed, the Democrat comes out ahead. And so I think if the Democrats are smart, they're going to pivot away from from using this op-ed and this book that even though Woodward has a long, you know, long and established reputation as a as a journalist, and investigative reporter in D.C. That you know, but the, the truth remains that with independent voters, the fact that there's a lot of anonymous sourcing and you know, obviously the op-ed being anonymous, there is a certain credibility question. Even if that question doesn't really exist for the people who know, you know, Woodward's reporting and how journalism work, how journalism works, in the mind of the average independent voter, there could be a lot of there could be a credibility gap there. So, I don't think it's to the Democrats advantage to be exploiting these two, you know, anonymous, anonymously sourced works. What what's going to work best for the Democrats is to be, to be to focus on policy and how progressive policies are going to make lives better for voters, and that's the best thing they can do in terms of in terms of beating Trump in 20 in, in the November elections. Admiral Can is, is this is this something
1: that, that calls into question any sort of command authority? I mean, does Mattis still take what the president brings forward as 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 a direct order? Or is there a uh yeah, let me get right on that, Mr President, and slow walking in certain instances.
2: So to answer your question directly, um I I, I believe I believe that General Mattis is going is to basically follow um, the legal orders of the Commander in Chief because that's what he has taken an oath to do, um, and so, and in and in doing that, you know, he can follow those orders as expeditiously as possible, or slowly as possible, um, you know, just based on what the priorities of uh, the day or the month or, or the year are. So that's a given. So a good example of that. Uh, might be how the, the the president's military parade just kind of uh, had a slow death. Uh, I do think that there was some slow walking going on there, but I have no no evidence to back up that opinion. Uh, with regard to the original question, and I I, I, I was I, I wanted to, to to make this comment. Um, I, I kind of, you know, I think the, one of the main reasons that you brought me on the show is because of the military background and, and, and the, the fact that I'm unique in that I am a, a person of color who is a voting Republican. Um, and that has caused me to, to look at some of these things in a really, really, you know, conflicted and bizarre way, this not being an exception. So, as a naval officer, we are charged with three main things following the Constitution, uh, being very, very good seamen, and maintaining good order and discipline. Um, I think that uh, this, this memo, uh, uh, this op-ed piece violates the good order and discipline um, uh, directive. Uh, I think the president has every right to be absolutely furious that someone on his team is doing this, that someone on his team is, is basically you know, putting what they think is more important than what they basically said they would do uh, as a member of his staff. If they have a real problem then they need to basically write the article uh put their name to it and then take whatever consequences come 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 along um there, we have not seen any profiles encouraged uh, out of most of the leaders in the republican party in the last 18 months um and you know what i think quite frankly this person if they stood up as you pointed out uh, made the comment dropped the mic walked off the stage I think that would do, especially if they're a high-ranking person, as they claim to be, I think that would do uh, do the situation a world of good. Um, I think that by making it anonymous, they, they're they they're, they're just making noise. And, and I don't remember who said, I think it was Laura, that if you've been paying attention to what has been going on for the eight, last 18 months, there's no surprises here, none. But what would be a pleasant surprise is if somebody on the inside basically stood up and said, you know what? This is crazy town, and we really need to stop this.
5: So, well, can I ask one question here uh, since, we, since Ken is kind of integral to this? The, ahead, the, the 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 mixture of the loose use of titles uh, in this case matters. So Secretary Mattis is alleged to have slow-walked uh presidential orders either for the parade or even assassinations. Is that a little different from a General Mattis, a person in uniform slow walking orders? No. I would argue the answer is yes. No, it's not.
2: He's a Secretary of Defense. He's in a, uniform. A political appointee
5: e versus a man uh, in uniform. I,
2: they're, 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 they're different creatures. Yeah, so the guys in uniform, the guys in uniform, take an oath to follow the orders of the President of the United States, um, the, the legal orders of the President of the United States, uh, and to uphold the uh, the Constitution. The Secretary of Defense basically takes the same oath of office.
5: But the different penalties. The a a soldier, sailor, airman, and marine goes to jail if they don't follow an order. The Secretary of Defense gets fired. That's true. That's very true.
3: Okay. Well, but, listen, but, we, but we hey, gotta, Justin, if I can, if I can just add something here, though, I, I, real, I think real that quickly, that may be a distinction. the break. Go ahead. But, <laughs> that may be a distinction without a difference in in, in the case of somebody like uh, the Secretary of Defense. Um, yeah, I agree uh, with that. And and you know he he he's not saying, oh, I'm not I'm going to disobey because I took my general hat off. Um, it's, he's wired to to follow orders. On the one hand, he's also wired and, and required to 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 follow the Constitution. And as Ken as Ken said, to 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 follow lawful orders. So in the case of the assassination request uh, to go kill Assad, that was an unlawful order. I'm not sure that he said at the time, "Mr. President, I can't do that." But that'd be against the law. What he allegedly said, according to the to the Woodward book, was. He got off the phone and he said to an aide, yeah, we're not doing that. So, so this is this, this awkward, challenging um, place that Trump is, is so over the top with his ignorance um, and his impulsiveness that he's ordering up stuff all the time. We know that Richard Nixon, when he was feeling most under assault – was at different at different times give orders that were ignored. One being, I want you to go firebomb the Brookings Institution. Well, it didn't happen. Okay, now whether the president was serious, half serious, semi serious, whatever, um, uh, the, the the people around him thought, yeah, that's we're not going to do that. In the Meantime, they were breaking some other laws that 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 the president president nixon may or may not have actually ordered but that they felt was consistent with what he would have wanted um and and i i started out this whole conversation i'm just going to remind everybody again that it is not unprecedented that people who are given an order by their boss or a request made by their boss choose to in ken's words slow walk it now is that a violation of their vow and their duty? Well, not in their judgment, but it is using their own personal judgment to, uh, to, to do what they think is most consistent with the oath they took upon coming to office. And any of us who work for a politician, and I, I, I don't want to put Ken on the spot, I'm guessing that once or twice along the way that, Ken, you received an order that you thought, we can't do that. Um, but so how do we do it? Do we ignore it? Do we, re- do we remove the piece of paper? You probably have there's different methods and techniques that are available to people Me, that, that, that are used regularly and constantly in probably just about every White House. Um, having, having said that, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that every White House has been like this White House. No, to the contrary. What makes right. this one stand out? is that there's apparently a regular pattern, and apparently there's some number of people who, who find it necessary from time to time to talk right. amongst themselves. Now, I'm not thinking right. there's a group of 10 that gets together uh, in, a, in a darkened garage somewhere in Roslyn um, every two weeks and, and, and shares stuff. This is going to be one-on-one stuff, two-on-one stuff, deputy-to-deputy deputy stuff. They're going to be careful. They're going to. they trying to serve their country. They're trying to, 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 to serve a duly elected president of the United States while he's a, while he's president. It's a balancing act. It's a juggling act. They wrestle with their with their consciences, with the, with the the vow they took uh, upon being sworn in. It's complicated. Um, one of the uh, my reaction to the op-ed was that. That it it seemed to paint for me uh, a picture of a bigger, organized resistance than, in my judgment, likely exists. And that's the problem with the anonymity. You can't cross-examine. You can't go back. You can't say. So you talk about this resistance. What are we really talking about? How does it? How does it uh, work? Um, How many people are we 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 talking about? How often does it intervene? The 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 taking a, a. a a statement, a presidential letter off of the president's desk, that wasn't in the op-ed. That was in the Woodward book. Um, And you wonder why was that letter on the president's desk in the first place? Because usually when you're slow walking or diverting, um, you're you're not putting it in front of the president and saying, oops, get that out of here. It's much more subtle uh, than than, than that. Okay. I'm
1: going to let that be the last word. Uh, when we come back, we've we still got a whole show that we've got to condense into basically 45 minutes. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the Judge Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. I want to talk about what happened with Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Uh, there's a government shutdown in 20 days. we got so much to talk about. We're going to take it lightning round when we come back. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Black Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. We're back here live from Washington, D.C. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, with the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Sharma Chari, Admiral Ken Carradine, Laura Chavez, Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, and, of course, our assistant producer, or our producer, actually, she's just our producer now, Audrey Howerton. Hey, uh, we've got so much we still got to talk about I want to talk a little bit about what happened last week in the Kavanaugh hearings. Bottom line, let me start with you, Alan. As somebody who's been in these type of confirmation hearings and a part of staff for these hearings, was was this just a huge kabuki dance by the Democrats regarding Judge Kavanaugh and his confirmation for the – Supreme Court, or did they do themselves some help in getting their point across?
3: Well, I, I think I think they they got a mixed record. Probably, net helped themselves a little bit, but 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 what do I mean by that? I mean, one, they they were able to ask a lot of questions, dig in, try to make some points. Some of the points were were exaggerated in my judgment in terms of importance where they kept talking about all the stuff that was being withheld and, 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 uh, and attacking some guy named Bill Burke, who they were saying, who's he who's making the decisions, ignoring who he actually was and why he was making those decisions because it wasn't in their interest to cast any real light on that significant and important question. Um, but, but they didn't have a lot to work with. What they were, so what were they trying to do? A, if they could uncover something that would weaken the, or, or, or cause the, the two Republican women who are characterized as pro-choice, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine, if they could get um, one or both of them to flip. On Kavanaugh, then they could probably hold all the Democrats and and turn it around. That was a real long shot, but if they could make uh, Kavanaugh stumble, make a mistake, uncover some document that would make it really uh, difficult for either of those or for that matter anybody else in the, among Republicans to vote against, that would be the that would be the thing they would want the most. But if not, could they do some damage to to the Republicans? the Republican majority, the president, Senate leadership that might have some impact on the 2018 election, then that would be uh, uh, point, effort number two to, to discredit uh, Democrats, A, and then also to point out to their own voters in the, this fall, see what happens when you don't elect Democrats. You get you get people, like you get a process like this, you get... Uh, judges who are going to be in the president 's pockets, so the narrative goes. I think it 's nonsense, but that 's the narrative they were trying to build and present so they they, 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 they would love to affect the two thousand eighteen election and then um, uh, so the accusation was made, and it had sort of some interesting uh, support if you watched what happened uh, the suggestion that at least a couple of those people in the room on the democratic side in the judiciary were. We're not going to pass an opportunity to get some national visibility because, who knows, if you shine in an opportunity like this, it might pay longer-term dividends for you politically. For instance, if you think maybe you could run for president someday, people might look back and say, wow, he or she was impressive that time. I, I didn't know who he or she was, and now I do, and wow, I'm impressed. So um, in, in all of that, I think that that, uh, uh, that that some of the Democrats might have helped themselves a bit on the one hand. On the other hand, all the people who think that one of the few th- good things that President Trump has done was to, to be in the right place at the right time to put some more uh, uh, conservative judges on the court um, uh, might say uh, sour grapes by the Democrats, um, or in the words of Lindsey Graham, if you want to name uh, Supreme Court justices, then get elected president. Um, and uh, so it's not that it that it harmed Republicans. I think it probably, in, in an odd way, uh, caused even the, the the Trump those questioning Trump to say, well, at least he's done something good for the country in. in in modifying the uh, – presumably modifying the makeup of the court.
1: Sharmlett, there was some criticism of Judge Kavanaugh about talking about uh, what they would call established precedent. Can you explain to me what is established precedent and exactly – why was Judge Kavanaugh being criticized so openly, particularly by the Democrats?
0: Sure. Well, first I want to say that I agree with 100 percent of what Alan just said. Um, what? Really? Yeah, I know. It felt a little strange wow. to say it, but I, I do have to give him kudos. <laughs> I think he's. I think he's summarized. Tried, so, Charlotte, you tried that suit on, and it looks
3: beautiful on. You.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, you can get far by complimenting a lady's appearance. All right, but, let's I mean, go. Let's move it. I got. Yeah. It. I got anyway, 35 um, minutes left. anyway, what I was going to say is that I think Alan did a great job of kind of summarizing the Democrats' exact motivations, and I think they actually took a page out of the Republicans' book, which is find some obscure, some obscure issue that could you know cast doubt on an otherwise legitimate process and just exploit it ad nauseum. Um, and whether or not they did that to. Good effect will be borne out, as Alan said, in November. But anyway, a key concept on the Supreme Court is the concept of stare decisis, which is, you know, that which is already decided. You know, so many – so much of Supreme Court law is based on, on stare decisis and the fact that, you know, okay, the court has ruled similarly – in case Y and a case Z that happened, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and therefore that same constitutional principle, the current judges will defer greatly to the judgment of previous courts that have decided these issues already or decided adjacent issues. So that's why the idea that, well, first of all, that's why when a case over, that's why when one case overturns previous case, so if you look at um, Lawrence versus Texas or uh, Brown versus Board of Education, these landmark cases that overturned established Supreme Court precedent, that's why those are a big deal. And that's why it's also a big deal to think that Judge Kavanaugh does not agree with established law. In this case, it's the law established in uh, Roe v. Wade and then kind of affirmed in Planned Parenthood v. Casey that um, there is a sort of right to – that the, the notion of – Life, liberty, and happiness that's contained within the Constitution that all Americans have the right to this creates or you know sort of imbues women with the right to privacy in terms of their medical decisions, and that that right to privacy is the foundation of why um, of why the federal government protects a woman's ability to procure an abortion if she so desires and so the idea that Judge Kavanaugh is going to potentially work to overturn or has, in his mind, doubts the validity of 40-plus you know, years of Supreme Court president is an incredibly big deal, not just to Congress, but also for the judges or the justices who sit on the court themselves, because stare decisis is such a core principle of how the Supreme Court issues jurisprudence. It's, it's sort of like, it's like Fight Club, right? The number one rule of Fight Club is to not talk about Fight Club. It's as if someone had sent an email saying, hmm, maybe I'm going to blog about Fake Club.
1: So here's, here's, the, here's the question that I have for Dan Lipner. Dan Lipner, you know, when we, when we look back at the Kavanaugh hearing from last week, was this truly the Democrats' opportunity to discredit a not qualified jurist for the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land? Or was it, as many are pointing out, including some on the Democratic side, it was a, a preseason game for who's going to run in 2020.
5: Well, a couple of those things can be true simultaneously. So, one, Brett Kavanaugh can be qualified and still should not be on the Supreme Court, in part because his confirmation hearings may as well have been every answer to every question – Yes. Hi. I'm going to be confirmed anyway, so I don't have to say anything. I, I'm hard-pressed to come up with another Supreme Court nominee who has said as little as Judge Kavanaugh during these hearings. Um, you haven't been paying attention, Dan. Were, Do you,
0: were, you not remember Justice Gorsuch?
5: No, no. <laughs> Justice Gorsuch actually said things, or at least with his talent and dancing around issues, said something. Kavanaugh hasn't so been that So Kavanaugh. Often. Let him finish. I mean, I'm looking, Alan, I, let him I, finish. I, I, I'm looking back I at, at, at Chief Justice Roberts, who was truly impressive at the way he avoided answers, but also did provide some answers to some questions. Kavanaugh has provided, my, in my view, far less than even Gorsuch. And as far as the politics of it, the challenge I have is to Alan's statement of him or her. This was a coming out party for Kamala Harris, and she did just that. Ideally, she would have actually landed the punch, or she might still have something in her back pocket that uh, stems from those questions that she asked, uh, and possibly Judge Kavanaugh maybe will get caught in something uh, if evidence comes out. Hopefully that's the case from a Democratic perspective. But at a minimum, she most certainly put herself on the map for other voters and other people around the country who are paying attention to who is going to be running in 2020.
1: Alan Moore, I will give you rebuttal.
5: Well, no.
3: <laughs> I I I watched way more than uh, than I would like to admit of the hearing at least the first day and I found it really interesting. I found that it's it, it like a a constitutional law seminar. Uh, I was very impressed with his with his knowledge, with his recall, with his ability to explain what this decision and that decision meant, with his explanation of precedent on top of precedent, which he made a, a point multiple times about on the on the Roe decision that that was not only established a precedent, but that. Uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey about 20 years later was also precedent and precedent on precedent is more important does that mean I know how he's going to vote no but nobody else does either now how is he likely to vote that's a good question it'll depend on what the case is what the facts are Um, I I thought that he was uh, uh, really an excellent uh, witness which is why I was pushing back when when Dan was trying to say that he said nothing. Because um, I thought he said a lot without, at the same time, um, getting into his view on issues that are likely to come before the court, and that's just the the world we live in now, and it it's it's the world we live in um, in modern times. It's the world that Judge at the time Judge Bork didn't understand because we didn't have the new rules yet, and and he told everybody what he thought, and that was. Demonized and turned into stuff that, uh, uh, that that was that was grotesquely political and and ugly. And the lesson that came out of that was, don't talk about those things. Now this guy Kavanaugh has written. He's been on the court for 13 years. I think he's got 300 opinions. So we had all of that stuff, and we've got speeches and law review articles and so on. Plus. A whole host of emails and memos from the past. Um, so my view was uh, different than Dan's. Um, and that was why I just, I wanted to push back on the notion that he, (laughs) that the accusation that he had nothing to say, because I thought he had a lot to say. I thought it was, it was logical and interesting. And the thing is he had an audience of just a couple of people. And and that, that that was, we got to keep Murkowski and Collins happy. Um, and, uh, and not step into it in a way that would create bigger problems. Um, And I, and I thought he succeeded. And I thought that with regard to Kamala Harris and then Cory Booker, I wouldn't want to leave leave him and his, I am Spartacus moment out. um, We'll get to that. We'll get to that. that." Fair enough. But, you know, it seems like he was, uh, he was trying out again uh, on a national stage and, and, and stumbled on his uh, Spartacus sword a bit. Um, But, But, uh, uh, you know, they were they were looking for some kind of an opening. And if they can't bring down Kavanaugh, they will take the issue into the fall um, and uh, and pound on uh, on the dangers of of a Republican in the white, this Republican in particular in the White House and, and Republican control of Congress. I think that will be a big issue. I don't think it's just going to be issues. I think the politics is going to, is going to play a large role um, in uh, uh, the, the national politics, a large role in how the uh, and how the Democrats um, uh, choose to run their elections this fall.
1: Lord Chavez, uh, did did Camilla Harris or Cory Booker do themselves really any favors? I've heard some even Democrats criticize them for showboating on the Kavanaugh hearing, did they damage any potential 2020 run? Or at this point, does it matter?
4: I think that they've created, uh, each of them individually created, one solid soundbite for us to hear about 20 times in about 18 months. So I think they didn't do themselves any damage, but I also think this is going to be a moment that won't necessarily can be part of their foundation, but this won't be the foundation of them taking a stand for the Democratic Party for 2020 or anything like that. Um, They, in their I am Spartacus moment in Kamala Harris's, you know, grilling of what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said versus what uh, Kavanaugh was saying at the moment, like, I don't think they did, they won't necessarily get any traction with anyone outside of that room in 2020, but I think we'll hear that soundbite several times because it will be pointed out. It will be um, given a highlight in almost every um, news package we see until they start hitting the campaign trail much harder and these issues come up again because at that point in time it's going to be, you know, well, if, if they are running for 2020, and I don't know, I presume that we can all pretty firmly say yes, they probably will. But it will be a, oh, the next, whoever, you know, is, in the Oval in 2020, they're going to get Supreme Court justices of their own. What are their stances going to be? Who are they going to want to choose? Are they going to work with the Federalist Society? Are they going to work with, you know, what, who are their groups going to be? They'll be able to push back to these bites saying, oh, Cory Booker said he wants this. Kamala Harris said she pointed out that. Uh, so it's a soundbite that I feel like is going to be heard. Unfortunately, it's not going to make any difference once you get on the floor um, as Alan pointed out very clearly, the only two people that really matter in this fight right now are Murkowski and Collins, and um, I think Collins is the Collins is the one that you should be keeping an eye on. I think Murkowski is not getting the same type of traction that Collins is from her constituents.
0: I want to just add on to quickly to what Laura said. Um, I yeah, generally I, agree with everything she just said, but I do think that Booker and Harris might have damaged them. I think that with Democrats, I think Laura is absolutely right. Um, you know, they're, I don't think that this really furthered or damaged their credibility other than, to her point, providing a great soundbite. But I do wonder if a bit of their – you know, I did consider it a little bit of showboating uh, – will affect their standing with – uh, the more swing voter, the more independent voter come election season I, spe- I was especially disappointed with kind of uh kamalas Har- kamala harris's interrogation of Judge Kavanaugh regarding whether or not he'd had a conversation with someone at um Kasowitz Benson. It was a great line of questioning, and you know especially the the way Judge Kavanaugh at the beginning was very squirrely about answering yes or no. And I expected there to be a bigger payoff, so she kept hammering him and hammering him. Did you have a conversation? I'm asking you a simple question. Why can't you answer the question? And he kind of, you know, he could have given a, a fulsome response by saying, you know, not to my immediate recollection. But then again, I can't. I don't know the names of every single person I've had a casual conversation with at a cocktail party. Um, but he didn't. He he was very squirrely, and so I thought she really had some great bombshell saying, oh. Well, then, how do you explain this email dated March 17th, right? I was waiting for that moment, and then nothing came. And I thought, what was the point of all that then, except to sort of make a big deal about this question, get your two minutes on air, and then have nothing to show for it at the end? So I, do, I think that that can be something that could be used against both of them or you know, and Senator Brooker's kind of I am Spartacus moment. Um, could be something used against them to persuade more independent voters come election season. Yeah, but here's
3: the thing about
0: Justin, that. Oh. just hey,
3: can oh. I, I just get in? No, just for one second, because I gotta leave. I get I get to go to Hamilton tonight, and so oh. Oh. I much wait, as wait, I wait, wait, wait. Being with this Wait, group, wait, wait, wait. First all right. of
1: all, first of all, Alan. First of all, if you're gonna name drop,
3: really. You're going to, you're yeah. going to name
1: the play drop.
3: Wow. <laughs> oh, you you, bet. Take a shot. you <laughs> bet. You bet. I am Spartacus. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, you,
1: you, must have, you must have slept with Spartacus well, to get those tickets. I,
3: I just, I just, I just want to, to, to reinforce what Sharmila what said because it, and add one thing to Kamala Harris. I watched that as it unfolded. I thought What's she got, What's she got. And I thought that's what he's thinking. What's she got? What's she got? I got to be careful here because she's got something. Well, we certainly <laughs> we certainly haven't seen it, and the best time to she bring it nothing. forward was past. But the she but, but the other thing the other thing well the other thing I wanted to mention about her was the way she played the the uh, the his his comments and his description case regarding uh, uh, re- regarding ab- abortion was. Given today, if anybody saw it in the fact checker column of the Washington Post, a guy named Glenn Kessler, um, four Pinocchios—that's the most you can get for the biggest lie. That's not the kind of thing that that somebody who would like to be considered for highest highest office wants necessarily on her resume. In part, unless it's Donald Trump. You, you,
4: you, say, can, right, you, you know. can
3: build. You can build ads uh, about that. And and, and the la- final word about from me, sorry, on, on on Cory on on Cory Booker is, he's thumping his chest for his courage in flaunting Senate rules by by putting something making something public that had been cleared for publication. Hours earlier whether yeah. he knew it or not It was like I'm really tough I'm really tough Here's this thing that they won't let me Oh sorry never mind So I think hey, that Justin. in most cases They backfired <laughs> Their their efforts <laughs> to advance their cause Backfired and there may be You know some, Alan, some
0: you, know, Alan funny.
1: you know Alan it's funny you'll get, a, you'll get a kick out of this I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's in journalism I won't mention their name but They kind of compared that You know what I'm going to be brave and I'm gonna violate the Senate rules and I'm just gonna release these documents publicly. They they call that Cory Booker's uh comfy pillows Spanish Inquisition run. All you can look at him is go, no, 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 nobody expects a Spanish Inquisition. Get the fluffy pillows. And they attack he attacks the fluffy pillows. It's absolutely crazy. D- Justin? Yes, so I'll have French to check
2: out yes.
3: Admiral Ken, anyways,
1: uh thanks for joining us as always. And out goes out goes Alan Moore. Admiral Kenton, you have it.
2: Justin. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I guess two things on the Cory Booker thing. Um what frightens me um and and I'm even more frightened now is before Alan's comment, uh I, I was having these these pictures of Cory Booker in a Roman gladiator outfit. And now, now okay. I got pictures okay. of Alan Moore fighting Cory Booker. Both of them wearing Roman gladiator outfits. It's just, okay. it, it's scary. You
1: interrupted <laughs> the show for that.
5: Hair. You interrupted <laughs> the show for that.
1: Good hey, God. So at least I'm not.
5: I'm not. We don't have Hamilton down here in
2: Palm City. Okay? So, you know what? That's it, it. You know <laughs> what?
1: I'm bo- I'm, you know what? I'm putting both of you in timeout for Hey, five hey I have
5: something real to say here. Oh, okay. Go ahead. No, so, so my point uh, to challenge Alan and Sharmila as far as, as far as Kamala Harris, not Cory Booker, the I Am Spartacus thing was not uh, But Kamala Harris, her line of questioning and one question in particular, can you think of any law that just a man's body? Mm-hmm. I am quite certain if it has not already, and I suspect it may already have been, an ad for Emily's List, and or Planned Parenthood for their fundraising, it's already out there. So that specific line, we went in a political town. That had a point. And while the punch may not have landed against the judge, it did go somewhere, and it might be worth millions of dollars in a presidential nomination.
1: I mean, Sharma, do you agree? Does, did that buy her? uh a ticket to the show in 2020
0: i think it was i agree with dan i think it was a great moment um and you know an inspired question whether or not it buys her a ticket to the show is yet to be seen i think that a lot will depend on the outcome of these hearings uh which way senators collins collins and murkowski votes and obviously who the other players in you know, in 2020 are. So while it is a good moment and something that certainly can go on her highlight reel or her you know, news package, as Laura said, I don't know that it's that sort of incredibly viral moment that every politician hopes for.
1: It, so Laura, does does Camilla Harris quickly become the front runner in the Democratic ticket in 2020 because of the showboating she did this past week?
4: uh for the next 20 minutes sure i think it's going to be an av- <laughs> it's probably going to be a bit of a bloodbath right now cory bookers uh well yes everyone's saying it's the i am Spartacus moment was the spanish inquisition with fluffy pillows yes i also think that's some moment that he can be asked about in the future and he can play it off really well the kamala harris line of questioning about um the attorney she might have talked to that's going to be harder to fish her way out of um, but I think, when it, I mean, everybody knows Washington's a place to spin. So if you can talk your way out of a previous slub, a previous mistake, you put yourself kind of almost back in with independence. I think right now, yes, yeah, I'll, I'll give it to Kamala Harris. Right now it's Kamala Harris and somebody else, 2020. But I am pretty sure if we have the same conversation or the same question in 48 hours, it's going to be somebody else.
5: However, who would say that Kamala Harris doesn't pay off 48 hours before the Kavanaugh vote? Who says Alan's right, that the right point to challenge him on that or to drop the evidence was the committee hearing? In the age of Trump, the last-second bombshell might be the catch. Yeah. Well,
1: I want to bring up – there's other things I want to bring up real quickly. The one we're not going to get to today is the government shutdown. Uh, Audrey, put that on for next week if we can. But I do want to talk about the other big social news out there that involves the president in Washington. Obviously, this week was, this past week was the uh, kickoff for the opening of regular season with the National Football League. Nike put out an ad that it broadcast last Thursday for the first time at the opening of Thursday Night Football, featuring Colin Kaepernick as a new kind of Face for Nike. Uh, this caused a viral effect throughout the cybersphere, and even in uh, various circles inside and outside of Washington D.C. People are burning their Nikes. People are uh, burning their Air Jordans. They're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, Nike is even taking advantage of the free publicity. And actually put up instructions on how to safely burn their products, which is very socially responsible on Nike's part. The, the, the bigger thing here is, is, and I, and I want to start with you, Laura Chavez, is what Nike did for social justice, is what Nike did just for pure profit knowing that this would be the case and does it help the american situation with the political divide
4: um it does not help the political situation with the american divide that's for sure but i think nike did nike took a risk and i think that was really great um i think that this I mean they've seen a surge in profits and Phil Knight who is the owner of Nike has done some really bold things over the course of his career um I actually just finished reading his uh autobiography or biography shoe dog or whatever you want to call it, or and this is essentially if you look at his past actions this lines up with everything he is not afraid to take a risk he likes taking You know, he likes pushing the envelope. It's the same reason that Nike is so successful. There's Nike stores all over the country. You can create your own brand and all that stuff. But I think this is completely in line with anything that they've done in the – with a lot of things they've done in the past. Um, So, yeah, I think social justice-wise, it started a conversation, which was one of the goals of it for sure, and – they're, the thing is, Nike's a multi-billion dollar company. It's not like they're like, oh, gosh, we're going to lose thousands, hundreds, millions of customers. They're at a very secure place where they can afford to take this hit, if that's the case. And I think that it was a great move, social – I think it was a great move publicity-wise, because everyone's got Nike on the tongue. I think even at every – and the the other thing is, every time a person who supports Nike or supports the Colin Kaepernick movement sees a pair of Nikes on fire on their social media feed, they immediately think, oh, I should go buy some Nikes. And a lot of uh, charitable organizations have started saying, like, hey, instead of burning your Nikes, donate them to Goodwill, donate them to the homeless, donate them to this. So it's actually starting this totally other movement where it's making people who are burning Nikes look less charitable. So I don't know if they thought that to Section of it through, but I think that
0: this was the right move for from Phil Knight and team. Well, first, of all, I just want to Carmela? add on to that. I mean, Nike is a shrewd corporation, and they made a calculated business move, right? They already re- they've received forty three million dollars in free publicity from this from this campaign. And over Labor Day, their sales were $30 million over their traditional average, whereas at this point last year, they were $2 million below their traditional average. So I think that you know, there's no world in which you can say that they've lost money on this campaign and that you know, it was a wrong move from a business perspective. I think what's interesting is that you see Nike, right? Nike, Nike's brand is so inherently tied to the athletes that are the face of their campaign. And I think, you know, you've not only seen this trend of brands becoming more political, but you've seen athletes becoming more political. You know, think about that famous apocryphal Michael Jordan quote, which was, you know, Republicans buy shoes too, which is his reason for never really speaking out about hot button political issues. He wanted to remain an apolitical figure. But you see the big stars of today, you know, the LeBron Jameses, the Colin Kaepernick's, the the um, oh my gosh, Stephen Curry, Steph Curry's, right? All these guys are really comfortable and feel almost like it's their duty to speak out about you know social justice issues and especially issues that affect the African American community. And so I think you see Nike bending in that direction to really become symbiotic and one with the athlete. And you know at the end of the day, that is also enhancing their Wait, brand image.
1: Hold, hold on, Charlotte. Let me ask you this: Are we losing the forest to the trees? In this, I mean, you know, everybody's sitting there going, yeah, good for Nike. Nike stood up to the man. He stood up to the, they stood up to the bully Trump. They made 31% more money off of it. Are are, are we losing sight of what is being socially active at the cost of profits?
0: Right, but then why why are they mutually exclusive? Look, and look, like, brands are taking a risk now by taking explicit stances oh on God, political issues. Just why? this morning wait, can I can I finish? Just this yeah. morning, Levi Strauss announced that they are taking a stand they are taking a stand on gun control. They are their company is now supporting gun control as a corporate brand, not just the CEO in his personal time. The corporate brand is integrating, you know, gun control as part of their brand packaging. So, you know and no brand does this. Look, I, I think that the concept that to be, you know, to to advance social justice has to has to necessarily mean that you are not or that you are taking a hit that you're taking a, a financial hit doesn't make a lot of sense you can no. right because at at a certain point right think about all the com- think about all the companies oh, wait, 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 that have embraced wait, 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 you know LGBT wait, 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 wait. rights in the last this, in the last several wait, years and have on. done better for it companies on, this, will
1: this has got this has got problems written all over it. If we have a we have a lazy electorate as it is, with nobody taking personal responsibility for how they're governed.
0: And now you're I telling think that me that that's pretty paternalistic. No, I, mean, I, I know, I know that's you've that's been saying this for a long time, and I believe me, I've seen voter apathy. But I think it's look, brands don't do anything in a vacuum and they don't launch a major campaign, any sort of major campaign premised on a social issue without a lot of market research and a lot of thought put so into it. You are
1: going to take you are going to take an already at best apathetic, at worst lazy, misinformed, stupid electorate, and you're gonna say and now you the fact that they get their their voting advice from thirty second sound bites off of some made up news agency with some guy eating hot pockets in moscow nobody does research nobody takes personal responsibility everybody's just taking the easy click out and now because i wear levi's that's going to set my social justice views that's crazy no, Justin, but but no no no, no, you're no, assuming, no 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 you're assuming that people no, yeah. care
0: equally about their elected representatives than they do about their sneakers people care way more about their sneakers. They care way more about their sports. The they care way them more them about vote? the stuff that's interesting. Who says they're being told how to vote? They are, you know, Nike chose Colin Kaepernick, who's very outspoken on one issue, which is, you know, racial, unequal, race, unequal racial outcomes in criminal justice, right? That is Kaepernick's big issue. The fact that it's gotten conflated with, when you know, he, disrespecting he the, the problem, troops and not problem, caring about the flag and all that nonsense has been imposed by. You know, our president. But Colin Kaepernick has all, like, his protest started around one specific issue. Here's it never, it hasn't started about, you know,
1: for, wait, wait, you know, wait, wait it,
0: wait. it didn't start about Democratic here's, candidates versus Republican candidates or anything the, to do with voting. Here's so, the problem, yes, I obviously. Have the, this.
1: Sharmila, here's the problem I have with this. The problem I have with this is the fact that, you, look, when Colin Kaepernick did what he did, when he first started it, I was against it. I said, look, this is a purely self-PR play. He couldn't get a job, and so he's going to do this to give himself some recognition. I was against it. The more and more I looked at it, and the more and more he stood his ground, I came around and said, you know what? It is his right. We, People like me and Admiral Ken and everybody else that served in uniform and everybody else that's fought for Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, et cetera. He's got the right, and you know what? We should support him in that. The second it became back around about a paycheck and profit is when I get heartburn. Do Wait, you but think, you missed the fact well, okay. that you
0: yeah, but you no, no, the no, fact no, that no, he's, no, been, no. he's been he's no, been blackballed no. from his hold actual on, on, profession. Admiral Ken. Admiral Ken
1: first. Admiral Ken.
2: So, so I, I don't I don't look at it as as it being Nike's move um, as being purely profit driven. Um, I, I guess um, the thing that I, I when I saw the ad, um, my first my first reaction was, okay, good um, that um, not, at least someone is recognizing the fact that. Um, this person, unlike most Americans, and I will be uh, paternalistic in that statement, uh, unlike most Americans, is willing to basically risk it all for something that he believes in and got put out uh, by by Nike uh, representing that fact. Um, two, um, Nike is... Uh, hey, Admiral Ken, a company. hold on.
1: Admiral Ken, Admiral yep. Ken hold on. Yep. I'll jump in on that. When somebody like you says, I'm... You were willing to give it all up, even if it meant you sacrificing everything. You actually signed up to serve in the military, and you signed up knowing that you could sacrifice your life for everything. Let's just be clear about that, okay? This is a paycheck for
2: Calum Justin, 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 Uh, let me finish. Let me finish. So one, uh, this this person, Colin Kaepernick, has basically put himself out there, and for all practical purposes, he has lost his career. The thing that he basically wanted to do most in life, over over his overtaking this stance, and, and that he's trained uh,
0: for for the last thirty years.
2: That's exactly right, and and that and so that I think is 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 noteworthy in in and of itself. Uh, the other thing that I would say here is that. Um, the, the 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 fact that Nike basically put that out, they, they were taking a chance, their company, absolutely sure, but companies have taken social, social justice uh, stances before, and I'm hoping that they'll do it again. And I think the thing that I, I, I found interesting about all of this is that the president and all of his supporters and the people that basically had negative reactions to that article I wrote earlier this year about this subject – Seen me forget um, Frank Sinatra Frank Sinatra uh, A Reaganite um, A conservative A white dude Basically came out in, in, uh, in favor of racial justice Well before it was invoked to do so and, and, and so the fact of, of celebrities stepping out And, and companies stepping out to, to make social justice statements Is not new And I'm hoping it doesn't stop
3: it, and if they make can. a little
2: money along, if they make a little money along the way, you know what? I'm okay with that because that's what can. the country is. Ken, yeah. remember Frank
1: Sinatra backed JFK. He was very much Hollywood elite.
5: Right, but it was a different time. But
1: yeah. yeah so okay.
5: there's there there's a couple of things here, and we got two uh, minutes. I believe, Dan, Dan, Dan. So I, I I'll
1: make a promise to you, Dan. I'll make a promise to you. We'll pick this up next week. Okay. I haven't we spoken got- on
5: this at all. Are you serious? Oh, all right. You got,
1: you, got, you got a minute. Go.
5: It's literally the marketplace of ideas, and I believe the, the historical quote that comes to mind is, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So the idea that money is at play here means nothing. The idea that ideas are at play, and Nike has chosen to wrap their arms around this idea, and the marketplace has literally rewarded them for it, is something worth noting and something to take part in.
2: Now, the people
5: to feel bad for are the poor folks at New Balance who have an idea thrust upon them that they don't want, which is being the shoes of white people. So kudos to Nike. Kudos to the rich. And kudos for the people who are buying the shoes because of the idea they are projecting.
1: All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, With that, we've got a minute left. Thank you, Laura Chavez, Ken Carradine, Sharmila Chari, Dan Lipner. Uh, As always, thank you, Audrey Harrington. We didn't get you on this week, but we'll have you on next week. Uh, I'm your host, Moderator Justin Russell. We will be back next week for the best political talk show you've never heard of Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Check us out at our website, backroompolitics.org. Follow us on Twitter at Politic. Or you can hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash BackroomPoliticsRadio. Or you can send me an email, fan mail, etc. cetera, justin at backroompolitics.org. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. Backroom Politics.